From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. What I've learned over the last few years is when you do go through the, the, the tougher times and the struggles and the challenges in your life, that for me, the thing that you do is, first of all, you double down on your prayer life. And the second thing is you pull those that are close to you even closer and rely on those strong personal relationships. Because when we do struggle, having a strong faith and having a strong sense of individuals around you, really, that's the key. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michael Lovell. Dr. Michael Lovell is president of Marquette University. He's the university's 24th president, and he's been serving since 2014. Under his guidance, Marquette University focuses on innovation, entrepreneurship, and community renewal and development, all within the university's Catholic Jesuit mission. But today, we're going to be talking about something a little different than his work at the university. We're going to be talking about adverse child experiences and trauma. So if this is something that might be triggering for you, I just want to give you a heads up at the top of the show that we're going to be dealing with some subjects about childhood adversity that may be uncomfortable for some listeners. So please be advised. Dr. Michael Lovell, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you very much for having me. This is a huge topic, and I I want to sort of take it in stages. And so I'm going to ask you in a couple of sentences, when we talk about trauma, are we simply talking about somebody stubbing their toe or having a bad day, or are we talking about something different? What do we mean when we use the word trauma? Well, trauma has many different forms and impacts a lot of different people, but any type of experience where it's emotionally or physically challenging to us uh, can be considered a trauma. And the thing about trauma, you know, a lot of times we think about PTSD for people that have experienced war or whether it's gun violence or, you know, whether it's actually violence in the home the actual physical response to that trauma is similar no matter what form we take it in. And so when you think about trauma that we've experienced in our own lives, one in two individuals in our country have experienced trauma in their life. And so it's something that we all deal with. And you know, there's actual both a physical and emotional toll that it takes on us. So I'm hearing a lot in that answer. And let me kind of unpack that. So first of all, that's a pretty staggering statistic that you just gave me. Did I hear you correctly that one in two persons in America will have experienced some form of trauma during their lives? That's true. My goodness. And you said that trauma is something that leaves not only an emotional, but a physical effect. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So Dr. Nienberg Harris has published a book. It's called The Deepest Well. And in there, Uh, She was one of the first individuals to understand that there is a physical toll that trauma takes on us. And that physical toll, actually, you can pass that on genetically to your children. So essentially, the, the trauma that your parents and grandparents faced, actually, you face as well. And so it's actually about genetics. And so in that, that trauma, both it affects the brain and, and kind of your brain chemistry, but also they've linked it to 
ailments uh, of the body, things like, you know, heart disease and other ailments that could have long-term health impacts for you. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you experience an event and that event causes a physiological reaction. Chemistry gets elevated in your body. But I'm hearing you saying that that elevated chemistry that happens to you can then also be passed on to future generations. You said grandparents and parents can pass on trauma to their children. That sounds amazing and terrifying. Now, first of all, have I heard that correctly or did I miss something in the chain there? No, you've heard that correctly. And generational trauma. And so when we think about the trauma that we experience, it's really important for us to try to heal from that trauma so that we don't pass it on to the next generation. Now, you mentioned a term just a couple minutes ago, PTSD. And for listeners that are unfamiliar with that term, that means post-traumatic stress disorder. But I think it would be also helpful for our listeners if we kind of lined out what that is. So let's take an event. Like, let's say that a person is in a car wreck. That's a traumatic event. That causes physical injury, but that can also cause emotional injury. You can have flashbacks from it. But when we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, what's the mechanism or what happens? when that single traumatic event becomes now a disorder. What's that all about? You can imagine if you've had one of these disorders and you can become what is known as being dysregulated, which means your your brain is you know hypersensitive to the situation around you because your responses are turned on so that you are ready in case you know something happens and you need to protect yourself. And it's oftentimes we, we often describe it as if you encounter, you know, you're walking down a trail, you want to walk and a bear comes out, you know, and that immediately turns on the parts of your brain that go about self-protection. And when the back part of it is just the back part of your brain is active, you actually, it's a direct response and it's very hard for you to get to your frontal lobe where you have your logic and reasoning. And so people that PTSD, you know, are so worried about the protection that it's very hard for them to focus and concentrate on the things right in front of them. So if you have a, a soldier that comes back that has PTSD and they're, they're enrolled in class and seeing the classroom, what you will find is they will sit and position themselves in the part of the room where they can see the doorway or they can have a quick escape route. And, you know, you can imagine that if you're worried about staying alive, it's very hard to concentrate what's going on, say, in the classroom and the world around you. And so it really, the, the disorder, we become hyperactive and hypersensitive to understanding the situation around you because you're so traumatized by what has happened to you that you have to worry about protecting yourself. It almost sounds like if you've had like a broken bone or a deep wound and it leaves a scar or you you sort of feel that break as the years go on, I'm hearing that this is almost like that same kind of scar, and I I don't want to overplay this, but it's almost like a scar in your brain where you're feeling something and it's causing you to, in the same way that you would favor uh, an injured leg or you'd favor an injured arm, it's almost like you're favoring certain parts of your brain. And what I'm hearing you saying is that that favoring oftentimes will be uh, keyed towards that fight or flight kind of response, that very basic kind of almost reptile brain response. Have I heard that correctly? Yeah, you said that correctly. And, and what happens is there are parts of our brain, you know, when you experience these traumas that are, again, hyperactive, they're overactive, and, you know, that actually changes your behaviors. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Dr. Michael R. Lovell. He's the 24th president of Marquette University, and he's a distinguished scholar, researcher, and educator. President Lovell holds three academic degrees in mechanical engineering, including a doctorate from the University of Pittsburgh. But today we're talking about adverse child experiences and childhood trauma and the way that those traumas linger into and affect adult life. Well, Dr. Lovell, we're talking now about childhood experiences of trauma. We're talking about traumatic experiences in adulthood, and we're talking about a condition called post-traumatic stress disorder. So post-traumatic stress disorder, as I understand it, is you have one traumatic experience. You're in a car wreck, or to use your example, you've you've encountered a bear, and that leaves a lingering moment for you. But I've also heard that there's an additional sort of condition that compounds on top of this, either complex or compounded post-traumatic stress disorder, when the traumas are ongoing or in a sort of continuing basis. Uh, First of all, is that correct? Is there a difference between PTSD and complex PTSD? And what are some of those differences? Well, you know, one of the things it's, it's like anything else, when you have repeated trauma, it has a longer term impact than if you have just one traumatic event, not that one traumatic event isn't something that isn't difficult to get over, but when you continually, you know, it's like, it's, it's the repetitive nature of a group of small traumatic experiences that can really have the most or hardest impact on your brain and can be the, the hardest to recover from. And so a person who has PTSD, we said, might, if they come into a classroom, they might choose to sit in a place where they can see the door or where they have a clear avenue of escape. A person with repeated traumatic injuries, what I'm hearing you saying is it might be a more difficult. Is it more difficult to overcome sort of uh, multiple traumatic experiences or is the process the same? It's more difficult because, you know, the, the more repetitive trauma that you experience, you know, the more that those reactive tendencies get embedded in your nature. So if, for example, if someone is living in an inner city or somewhere where there's continuous violence and and continuous traumatic experiences ongoing over and over again, you know, you're, again, you're forming pathways in the brain and those just keep getting reinforced and more reinforced. And so to overcome the trauma you experience will cause even more work because again, one of the great things we've learned in just recent years is the brain has plasticity and you can reprogram your brain. So even if you have had these challenges, experiences, you can heal from them. And again, these, what happens is if you've experienced continuous trauma on top of each other, your brain becomes very reactive, you know, and when you're in a reactive state, again, you're not necessarily using your logic and reasoning, you're just trying to be in survival mode. And so, again, to try to overcome repetitive traumas that have created these channels or pathways in the brain that are really strong, you know, overcoming those strong pathways just takes more time and effort. You mentioned that the brain has plasticity and that the brain can recover from this. But I think probably the first step in any kind of journey of recovery would be figuring out that it's a problem in the first place. So maybe let's talk now about how one begins to discover about themselves that they are affected by these traumas. Because sometimes traumas can happen from a very early part of life and you may not have a direct memory of them. What are some of the diagnostic tools that a person might use to begin to uncover whether or not they are affected by the kind of traumas we're talking about? Well, I think one of the easiest things people can do is there's something called the Adverse Child Experience Score. And this was a study that was done a number of years ago that it's just a simple set of 10 questions that you can take 
and you get a score from one uh, from zero to 10. And you could just understand based on answering these questions, whether you had these childhood experiences and experienced trauma growing up as a kid. And the thing about the study it shows is that, you know, they've, they've done a lot of research. And if you have a score, you know, the higher your score, you know, again, getting back to your previous question, the higher score means the more trauma you've been exposed to means the more challenges you will likely face in life, whether it be physical or emotional challenges. And again, I realize that I'm asking a very general question for something which is oftentimes very individualized, but if a person takes this 10-question adverse child experience score test and discovers that they have, what what would be a score that would be needing of attention? Like if a person gets a 2 or a 5 or a 7, what's the trigger point when they're like, oh, I need to start attending to this? Well, first of all, again, getting back to our point is, you know, one in two of us score at least a one or higher on this test. So at least half of us have had at least one adverse child experience that has caused trauma. I would say that anyone who scores a one or higher probably should think about how that impacted them and, you know, how they may be able to heal from that. But there's definitely shows that for a score of four or higher greatly increases individuals' chances of experiencing you know, things like depression, incarceration, heart disease, diabetes, becoming dependent on substances, you know, that it really goes up. And so for those of us who have had a score for a higher, we really need to think about how we're going to unpack, unpack that. But I would say that anybody who scores at least a one should think about how that has impacted them and how they may heal from that. I just want to make sure that listeners followed what you just said. So a person who's had a traumatic experience or an adverse child experience, they are not just at risk of having post-traumatic stress disorder, but you mentioned depression, but also heart disease, diabetes, incarceration. Let's just linger with that for a moment. So these adverse child experiences, these traumatic experiences have deleterious effects, not only on one's emotions, but on every aspect of one's life, don't they? Yes. Yeah, and it's overall, your whole health and well-being are impacted. And that's why it's so important to try to heal and to work on, you know, healing from these experiences and the trauma that you've, you've had. And again, I'm asking questions in a very general way right now as we're moving towards the break. But if a person discovers that they have these adverse child experiences, or maybe they've known it, but now it's confirmed by this test, what in some general broad strokes would recovery look like? Is it, is it a pill that they take? Is it talk therapy? Is it moving their body in a certain way? What are some general ways that a person begins to recover from these kinds of traumas? There's a number of modalities that you can use to, to heal from the traumas. And the, the best way that we've learned is is through caring relationships. You know, that is one way that we learn uh, to heal from these traumas. A uh, second thing is things around mindfulness. We know that prayer life and looking inward and understanding ourselves and why we do some of the things that we do, you know, having it going and speaking with a therapist or uh, these are all, all things that we can do to help heal from the trauma. But really it's Personal relationships play such a huge part of this and unpacking some of the issues we face when we are younger and be able to, to work through those. And again, we have shown that through mindfulness and other exercises, we can reprogram our brains to create new pathways so that we don't go to those reactive tendencies, which we talked about earlier, which quite frankly, don't allow us to use the front part of our brain where we have the logic and the reasoning and you know that relationship building. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Michael R. Lovell. He's the 24th president of Marquette University. Today we're talking about traumatic stress and adverse child experiences and the recovery from these events. And we, we will be delving into this as our conversation continues. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Michael R. Lovell. He's the 24th president of Marquette University. He's been serving since 2014, and under his guidance, Marquette focuses on innovation, entrepreneurship, and community renewal and development, all consistent with the university's Catholic and Jesuit mission. But today, we're not talking about the university so much as we're talking about adverse child experiences, trauma, post-traumatic stress, and the recovery from these conditions. Well, Dr. Lovell, we're talking about these issues of trauma and adverse child experiences in part because you made the decision in the last couple of years to begin being more public about your own adverse child experiences and traumas. And if you're willing, I'd like to take a few minutes and explore a little bit of that and your own process and journey of recovery. So if you could briefly let my listeners know a little bit about what you have been struggling with in your life with regard to trauma and adverse child experiences. Yeah. And maybe I give a quick background as you know, how we got into this space. Almost three years ago, I was at a forum here at Marquette University, and it was talking about the disparities that exist within our city. And what we found out, there was panelists talking about disparities in our healthcare system, education, uh, the prison system. And so we had the economic disparities and we had a couple of brain scientists talking about the issues that our city faced. And all of them went back to the fact that generational trauma in Milwaukee is one of the root causes of the disparities within our city. And so it got my wife and I thinking about if we wanted to make an impact, I could use my platform as president of the university to make a difference in the city that we were in, which is really part of our Catholic Jesuit mission, you know, I really needed to address trauma. And as we started to address trauma, I became more aware of the own trauma that I'd experienced as a kid. And when I learned about the ACE study and I took it and I had a score of five out of 10 and learned that my likelihood of success with an ACE score of, in life with a score of five was something that would, it's quite frankly, is very low and got me really reflecting and thinking about how was it that I was able to be successful when many people with a score that high are not. And and again, it, 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 I, I had me dig deeper into my own past and 
the things that happened to me that allowed me to grow and, and develop into the person that I am and the work that I still needed to do in ways I still needed to, to grow as, as a person and try to recover from the traumas that I faced. And so I just want to make sure that I've, I've heard correctly. So in the context of your work as president of Marquette University, you were involved in a public dialogue about the impact of generational trauma on the city as a whole, the city of Milwaukee. And in the process of that, you realized that you, if I heard you correctly, you have your own recovery journey, your own story, and you thought that this could be a platform, a way to begin to talk personally about these larger issues of citywide civic cultural and generational trauma, but you would use your own experience from a personal standpoint to begin to talk about these larger issues. I just want to make sure that I've heard that correctly. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, one thing you learn in leadership is that people connect to you oftentimes in your brokenness and in rather than your strength, and they can relate to your weaknesses. And so for me, if I was going to be starting to lead an effort around healing and trauma in our community, I thought it was important for people to understand that I, too, had experienced significant trauma and that I also needed to heal myself. Longtime listeners to my show will know that occasionally I talk about some of these experiences as well. So I'm a survivor of childhood trauma. There was gun violence in my household. There was substance abuse. And I my family is very much a part of my own recovery. And I don't often go into that, the details of that journey here on the show, but I'm very much interested in disclosing that as a way of saying, if there are aspects of your own experiences that you feel comfortable sharing, just to give the listeners kind of an example of what you're talking about, what brought you to that score of five on the adverse child experience score, that would be helpful. But also if you're uncomfortable doing it, I completely understand. No, no, I'm totally fine speaking about some of the things. So you know, my family has significant, first of all, my, my mother's had significant mental health, uh, mental illness, and my grandfather died by suicide. My mother, growing up, had three suicide attempts. You know, my father was an alcoholic. You know, he could be uh, abusive. My parents got divorced. All these things are things that add up to your A score. And so, again, I would say that my immediate family units did not provide a lot of stability, you know, for me growing up as a kid. And uh, in many respects, you know, I was trying to navigate life, you know, on my own at a fairly young age. And you mentioned that with a score of five or above, the likelihood that someone with a score like that would become, say, the president of a university or have another kind of successful, high-level social position is rare. And from what I've heard in the conversation so far, one of the things that you've said again and again is a person has a better chance of success if they are surrounded by a community, a support group, good relationships. I would imagine that you would attribute some of your own success and recovery to the fact that you were able to move from these traumatic experiences into supportive relationships and relationships of recovery. But maybe for my listeners, if you could give some details about what it was like to shift from a place of trauma and adverse child experience to a place where you could trust and begin to recover again, what was that like? It's interesting because both my wife and I, we've both had trauma as kids and we both feel really lucky that we grew up in small towns. And when you're in a small town, I think it's a little bit easier for you to be protected by caring adults. And so I look back at my past and it was coaches, it was teachers, it was some of my friends' parents, it was people at our church that actually looked after me, you know, when 
quite frankly, you know, my immediate family unit broke down. I remember there were times, fairly young age, 12 or 13 years old, where both my, I was on my own almost alone. And my friends would take me in for weeks at a time. I'd stay at their house. And the time you don't realize it, but, you know, they may have changed the trajectory of my life. And uh, as I just a few over the last couple of years, since I realized this, I actually was able to reach out to one of my best friends growing up. And, you know, I thanked him and his family for essentially looking after me and taking care of me when, you know, I was fairly young on my own and actually able to get back in touch and, and meet my friend's mother and thank her personally, you know, for in, investing in me. And it was really interesting. She just said, you know, we were, we were just worried about you and we wanted to take care of you, but I don't know where I would be if it hadn't been for people and families like that. So I want to dig into something that you just said, because you said that after these traumatic experiences, you were able to go to other more stable situation. A friend would take you in sometimes for weeks at a time, or a family would take you in sometimes for weeks at a time. Am I hearing in what you're saying that it's not just the event of trauma that can be damaging, but the fact that there's isolation after the trauma, like someone doesn't have those resources to go and be safe and be cared for, can that also be traumatizing? Can that add to the damage of the trauma? Of course. And, you know, one of the reasons why my wife and I started what's known as Scaling Wellness in Milwaukee is because we know there are individuals that are in circumstances where it's very, very hard to get the same experience that I had, where you are able to get into a safe situation where you do have some caring people around you. And so, and again, trauma is everywhere. And matter of fact, in the state of Wisconsin, there are some places that people have high race scores, actually, you know, that are out state, some, some poor areas where there's a lot of opioid and other drug abuse. Then even in the inner city that people just need to be able to get into spaces where they can feel safe and they can heal. And, and so many times that that doesn't happen for kids. And so what we really need to do is provide a framework and support mechanism so that we do have the ability for people that need to heal from their trauma, have the spaces and, and the people around them to do so. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is Dr. Michael R. Lovell. He's the 24th president of Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's a distinguished scholar and a mechanical engineer by training. But today we're not talking about that. We're talking about adverse child experiences and trauma and the journey of recovery that one can take to heal from that trauma. Well, just a moment ago, you mentioned an organization that you and your wife founded in Milwaukee to help those that are suffering from traumatic experiences and adverse child experiences. If you would, tell my listeners a little bit about that organization. We started it almost three years ago, and it was really, it was coming out of a forum that we had on campus where we discussed how trauma, generational trauma was something that really has impacted and increased the disparity that exists within our city. And so, what I did is I got that everyone who was invited to that panel discussion that was was in the room that day, I invited them back for a conversation on campus where we could talk about what can we do to actually impact and help people heal from the trauma that we know is quite uh, common in our city. And we started meeting every six weeks and we started with about 30 or 40 people in the room and we just invited everyone who was there. If there's people that, that are not here that need to be here, invite them to the next meeting. And over time, the meetings grew from 30 or 40 to, you know, over 200 people in some cases. And so over the period of 
almost three years, we've had more than 800 individuals from 400 organizations come to our meetings. And, you know, we started working on different aspects of how we can help support our community heal from the trauma that was, was part of it. And it's been, it's been a very powerful movement within Milwaukee. And as, as we know, you just have to look between the pandemic and the uh, the racial justice crises we have in our country, working on trauma may be more important now than ever. And so I'm going to put something out there and you can tell me whether or not I'm onto something or not onto something. But you began being more public about your own trauma, as you said, about three years ago, and that as a result of that, you began working with these public forums and beginning this kind of process where other organizations were coming alongside and, and beginning to speak about the kind of generational trauma that was there in Milwaukee. As you've been a participant in this healing process for others, has that helped your own journey of recovery? Oh, of course. As we've gone through this, we, for example, we've hosted two major conferences uh, where we've had some of the national leaders around trauma and brain science and recovery come in and speak to us. And, you know, I attended those conferences, pretty much all the sessions myself, and I've been able to learn, I tell you, what, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I've learned more about the brain in the last few years than I'd understood my whole previous lifetime. And uh, it's been fascinating for me to understand how trauma impacts the brain and how we can heal from that trauma and then reflect on myself and the trauma that I experienced and how I have healed and come to a position where I'm in, but how I continue to work and heal myself. What's fascinating to me is that you just said you're not a neuroscientist. You're, by training, you're a mechanical engineer. So your training is about the balancing of forces and the interaction of physical objects. When you think about your training as a mechanical engineer and when you think about recovery from trauma, is there any carryover from one to another? Does thinking about things mechanically in any way help you think about the recovery from trauma or are they completely different spheres of thought? No, it's not completely different spheres of thought. And, and what really resonated with me getting into this, the whole space of trauma and, and brain science was, again, that this was all scientifically based. This is all based on chemistry and physics of the body and all things that I, under, you know, I just for my training, you know, I, I think as a scientist. And so the fact that this is all based in science and that now we understand it from a scientific viewpoint uh, was something that again, it made me, it grabbed my attention and it really pulled me in to the space. That in itself is fascinating. So to say that it's based in science, and I'll just speak from my own family. So, you know, you're in a situation that's an otherwise normal situation. And then suddenly a person in the situation is erupting with anger or rage, or uh, basically a, an emotional situation has gone from zero to 60. If you don't understand trauma, if you've never encountered trauma before, that can seem scary and spooky and to come from nowhere. But what I'm hearing you saying is that when you begin to realize that these sort of outbursts have a neurochemical basis, that they have a location in the brain that you can say, oh, that, that part of the brain is flaring up right now. That makes them less scary. That makes them less random. That makes them less spooky. That makes them more manageable. Am I hearing that in what you're saying? Yeah. And there's, there's a phrase that we've learned. It's not, you know, what's wrong with you. It's what's happened to you. And, you know, I oftentimes refer back to children that maybe act up in the classroom. And again, it's not that they are bad kids. It's that they've had an experience that gets triggered in the classroom that impacts their behavior. 
And so I hate to say this, you know, but we maybe oftentimes expel or move children out of the situation uh, that they the worst thing we could do would be remove them from a uh, situation of somewhat stability because they have a certain behavior. We need to get to that next layer. Well, why does that behavior exist? And it's the same thing with the adults. If we have someone that, you know, I've seen it before, you're in a meeting and somebody says a certain thing, they get triggered and they react. And what they say and do isn't necessarily a reflection of what who they are they believe in. It's just the fact that they've, you know, this trigger has caused a part of their brain to become active that, quite frankly, they don't have a lot of control over. Well, and what's interesting to me, that statistic that you gave us earlier in the conversation, that one out of two people that we will encounter will likely have had a traumatic experience. That means that in things like a classroom, we we design classrooms with the idea that the people are coming with rather normal backgrounds, rather typical backgrounds. And we are not designing classrooms to be places where these kind of adverse child experiences are accounted for and are factored into with regard to behavior. And so as you're saying, when someone begins to act out because they've been triggered, we don't treat them as a person who is experiencing something and needs care. We treat them as an anomaly and we try and move them out of the normalcy of the classroom. And I'm scare quoting normalcy here. So it's almost like, and I'm again, I'm going to think about this, I hope, like a mechanical engineer would. It's almost like we have a typical set of physical conditions and we're designing for only half of those typical sets of conditions. We're designing for failure in the classroom, aren't we? Yeah, that, that it's very true. And you can imagine some individuals, based on where they live and, and the type of environment that they grow up in, you know, you could have students from areas of, you know, a city or state that all have score A scores F four or greater. And to think that in a typical classroom environment that those students could be successful, you know, how could they even potentially go into a classroom and learn when they're worried about, you know, being chased by a tiger all the time and they're in the back part of that brain, you know, there are techniques that, you know, if we incorporate and change the environments and do some simple things that can help those students be more successful. For example, you can just by simple breathing exercises, if you start a class, you know, with some mindfulness techniques can actually help students go from the back part of their brain to their frontal lobe, for example, just by some fairly simple things that can help them then have the ability to to learn. How early should this start? If we're thinking about this for children, should this start in elementary school or is this something that requires a little bit more maturity to begin to be reflective about? No, no, it's actually the earlier the better because essentially what you do when you teach some of these tools that you're giving them the ability to regulate themselves. And the earlier they learn to regulate themselves, the less reactive they'll become. Again, because your brain is developing, it's developing the most when you're young. And so if you can create a healthy pathways within your brain at an earlier age, that becomes your normal. And so that you do not, you know, have nearly as much impact of say trauma on you if you've if you've already learned to train your brain to develop in a healthy way. Now, I just want to make sure that I'm hearing correctly what the subtext of what we're saying is. So there are communities and communities have generational trauma, which means that there's a much higher level of ACE or ACE score, maybe four, five, six in terms of of these adverse child experiences, which means that if we put 
a child like that into what we might consider to be a typical or a normal classroom situation, they may not be able to function because they'll be triggering, as you just said, they'll, they'll feel like a tiger's about to attack them and they'll be responding like a tiger's about to attack them instead of feeling like this is a normal space, this is a good space. If we have entire communities that are affected by this generational trauma and we have the expectation that they'll be able to function in normal situations and we basically set them up for failure, it's almost like we're setting entire communities up for failure. Am I hearing that as a result of what we're saying right now? Yeah. And so, you know, you think about cycles that how do you break the cycle within a community? And, you know, I'm a firm believer that the best way to do that is through education. And when we talk about education today, it's not just your math and English and your your sciences. We all should be training people and educating people on their own personal health and well-being. And in Jesuit terms, we call it care personnels. It's care for the whole person. So when we think about what education should potentially look like in the future, you know, how do we incorporate mindfulness and self-care? Because self-care is so important into a person's overall education, even at an early age. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest is Dr. Michael R. Lovell. He's the 24th president of Marquette University and a distinguished scholar. His training is in mechanical engineering. We are talking today about adverse child experiences and trauma and the journey of recovery. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're interested in hearing more of these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Our guest today is Dr. Michael R. Lovell, the 24th president of Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're talking about his experiences of trauma and recovery and how those experiences have helped him to begin to be part of a citywide effort in Milwaukee to address generational and community-wide trauma. Well, a moment ago, you were talking about this concept from Jesuit thinking, this concept of cura personalis, or care for the whole person. I'd like to go into that a little bit more. When we talk about care for the whole person, we're talking about that in a religious, a Catholic context. Tell us a little bit about the history of that idea of cura personalis. Well, it's a, it's a really, it's a Jesuit principle, and it really is just about caring for the whole person. And it's really mind, body, and spirit. And so as we think about our own you know, health and well-being in our cares, how do we as individuals and then how do we as a community really think about our overall health in those terms? And so, you know, for me personally, I want to take time each day to tend to, to, to my mind, body, and spirit, all three. And so one thing that I've learned, you know, is, you know, again, we've talked about myself, my own trauma of experiencing healing from them. I spend at least 15 minutes or more a day in prayer and reflection and just kind of quiet time where I'm talking and listening to God. I think about 
being active. You know, I try to exercise each day, you know, whether it be running or riding a bike or just even walking the dogs each day. And then, and then also, you know, spending time in nature and seeing the beauty that all God has created and seeing God all around us, even when times are difficult. You know, again, it's, it's, it's really important to take that time for yourself each day. But then again, thinking about the same thing, how do we help our community from a mind, body, and spirit, heal and, and take the time you know, to to help itself. And so, you know, care personality is really about a person, but I've also, as I think about how we can help communities heal and be resilient, you know, it's helping create spaces and, and the ability for them you know, to experience the same thing. I'm aware, though, that when a person has had this kind of adverse child experience or has, has been a victim or a survivor of this kind of trauma, sometimes they can say, well, I asked God for help and God never helped me. The, the trauma just continued. Oftentimes, these traumas can make a person turn away from an idea of the divine or an idea of a higher power. And so I, I kind of want to ask this question carefully, but you've talked about the kind of mind, body, spirit. If a person isn't feeling very spiritual or they're feeling angry or or they feel like they've turned away from God, or they don't need God, are they missing an avenue? Will recovery not work as well for them? Or is there a way that they can begin to reconnect with this in some way? So I'm a firm believer that, you know, faith is a very important part of the healing process. And if we don't have the faith in, in, a, in a higher spirit, that it is probably going to be harder for them, you know, to heal because, so many things happen in our lives, particularly the traumas we experience. It's we question, we don't understand why they happen, and we don't understand what good would come from what's happened. And if we don't have the faith, you know, that there is a, a power greater than ourselves that'll guide us in our lives and being okay with that, because one of the things that people that experience a lot of trauma, they want to have control. You know, they want to have control over everything. It's something that, again, because when things happen out of their control and through the trauma they experience, that becomes a natural part of wanting to control everything. And so a faith allows us to let go of things that we understand that we can't control everything. And I think that is an important part of a healing process and step. And so, again, you know, I'm not saying that people can't heal that don't have faith, because I'm sure that they're there are many people that have and will. I just think that it is, you know, for me personally, you know, I can't imagine going through life without the belief that there is a God that's, you know, out there looking over us and helping us shape who we are. I want to come back to that in a couple minutes and, and ask you some more questions on kind of a personal level about that. But but for right now, I, I, I kind of want to stay with with the, the Jesuit educational experience. So earlier in the conversation, we said that on average, one out of every two people we'll encounter will have had one of these adverse child experiences. They'll score at least a one on the ACE test. But the, uh, many people that we encounter, particularly in areas like Milwaukee, where there's a higher level of generational trauma, they'll be scoring four, five, and six on this ACE test. And I'm thinking now about what we said earlier about classrooms being sort of set up for failure, and that if you are expecting a person to be able to navigate a typical classroom when they're coming in with this massive trauma, oftentimes that's a recipe for failure, a recipe for disaster. You mentioned that about three years ago, you began a community-wide effort and that Marquette University was a part of this. Has Marquette begun to change the way that it arranges its classrooms? Has it begun to change the way that it thinks about teaching, the way that it thinks about pedagogy as a result of some of these facts on the ground that 
probably a lot of the students that are coming into classrooms are dealing with personal and generational trauma? The answer to that is yes. And I think the, the important thing is, you know, again, as we think about training, you know, one of the important things we can do as a university is train the next generation of, of teachers and, and faculty. And so as we think about, first of all, the core of our education, including, you know, aspects of this in our core curriculum that all students take, and then specifically in our ed- school of education, helping train teachers on understanding, you know, trauma and how to first recognize students. And we've already, we're trying to train our faculty as well, is recognize students that are in the classroom that, that have suffered from trauma and ensuring that we give them, allow them to have the space that they can help address that trauma, but also be, as I said, there are tools and techniques, particularly our education schools. We think about training the next generation of teachers. You know, how do they help create a classroom so that they can minimize the effects that students that have had trauma before they've come into the door uh, will help allow them to learn? Let me just sort of ask an add-on question to that. Is it also possible to design badly a classroom so that classrooms become re-traumatizing or further traumatizing for students? Is that a risk that we take if we don't directly attend to making our classrooms more hospitable to those that have experienced trauma? Yeah. You know, there's two things. You know, we if we stigmatize individuals that maybe have had trauma and further isolate them because the worst thing we can do for people that have have experienced trauma is isolate them because their ability to heal typically not that it's non-existent but it goes way down and again we want to have an inclusive type environment where people feel welcome and safe that's the really important thing that we need to create in any classroom whether it's on a college campus or within within an elementary school Well, and you mentioned that there are some things that a person can be doing just on a daily basis. You mentioned exercise, but you also mentioned kind of deep breathing and meditation. So let's say that a person is listening to this program and maybe for the first time they feel a sense of, oh my goodness, this is me. I've had these experiences where I've suddenly flared up with anger, but I haven't known why. I've had these experiences where something has erupted and I have not known where it's come from. And they're hearing themselves kind of uh, spoken about in this conversation. What are some first steps, even before they get into a formal path of recovery, what are some steps that they can take right now just as they're listening to this program to begin to create a better sense of control or a better sense of connection to begin this journey? Well, I think the first is, again, it, it we all need to take time each day for reflection and create some spaces because there's so much noise and chaos in the world around us. We very rarely take that time, that quiet time. And so I think it's really important First of all, to take that quiet time and give your, yourself a time, whether you do just prayer or reflection, to kind of think about your day and think about where you did well and where maybe you've fallen down. And those times when you weren't the best version of yourself, try to understand why that is. You know, what causes us to maybe do things that we're not always proud of in, in the way we've, we've reacted to situations. And, you know, really the first step is, is it just, Taking that time, you know, just to, to think about you know, what's happened during the day and maybe, you know, why things happened the way they did. 
So what I'm hearing you saying is that the first step is to literally take the time and then to stop and reflect and be mindful. But I'm, I'm aware that the Jesuits have a tool for this. They call this the examine. And uh, maybe let's take a moment and if you could tell my listeners, what is the Jesuit, the Ignatian examine? And is that a useful tool for what you're, what you're talking about here? It essentially is the tool that I'm talking about because the Jesuit examen is at the end of the day, you just you reflect back on your day. You're supposed to give thanks for the day. Then you think about the things that went well in your day. And then you think about the things that did not go so well in your day. And then you reflect on how you could make yourself better for the next day. And it's just a, it's a great way. It's a simple tool that we can all use that begin to heal ourselves. The first step is awareness to become self-aware. And, you know, we all have blind spots and becoming aware of kind of your tendencies and, you know, helps you work on those blind spots. And the examine is a great way to do that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest is Dr. Michael R. Lovell. He's president of Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're talking about adverse child experiences and the recovery from trauma. Well, in your own life, you say that three years ago, you had a moment where you began to be more public about your experiences. You began to connect your journey of recovery from trauma to this wider journey of community recovery from trauma. I'm interested in hearing how your sense of spirituality or your sense of the divine has changed in the last three years as you've been more visibly in recovery and as you've been more of a participant in this public act of civic recovery. Well, first of all, my faith is something that has always been important to me. And, you know, one thing about, you know, my mother did suffer from significant mental illness, but she was a woman of strong faith and was able to instill that in me. So I feel very fortunate over my lifetime, I've really never strayed from that faith. And I will just tell you that what I've learned over the last three years is when you do go through the, the, the tougher times and the struggles and the challenges in your life, that for me, the thing that you do is, first of all, you double down on your prayer life. And the second thing is you pull those that are close to you even closer and rely on those strong personal relationships. Because when we do struggle, having a strong faith and having a strong sense of individuals around you, really, that's the key to making it through the tough times. And I really think that, again, what I've learned about trauma and how you heal from trauma, really, it's the self-care, the mindfulness, and it's also those caring relationships. So your faith and your family and friends you know, are real important during your most difficult times. So three years ago, you became more public about this process of recovery, and we've used the word kind of struggle a couple of times in this conversation. And so I'm going to ask a question that I don't know if, if this is going to ground out, but if it does, it, it might be interesting. So three years ago, there was a struggle for recovery. Three years ago, there was a struggle with triggers and with traumatic experience and the reliving of traumatic experience. Is the struggle different now? Or is the struggle less now? How has the struggle changed? And I, I guess what I'm asking is, is it, is it a, just a different struggle or is it, is it the same struggle only less? So I would say that it's, the struggle is always the same, but it's different in the fact that as you continue to work on yourself, you just get to the next level. And so before I knew about the A study or, you know, I was not aware of 
trauma and how it impacted me personally. And then once I did, I was able to go to that next level down of self-awareness and start working as I started to work on, you know, unpacking the trauma that I'd experienced and helped heal from that. But as then once you get to that level, there was another level down in it's a continuous process, you know, of working on becoming the best version of yourself. And I think we can work our whole lives and never become fully whole for those of us who experience, you know, significant trauma. And so I would just say that it just becomes a deeper, you, you, you get deeper into this and deeper in, into underst- your own understanding of yourself and your own understanding of, you know, how different situations, you know, cause you to react. And it's been fascinating for me because I've, I look back over my life and it's helped me under, understand myself so much more and why the way I am the way I am and why the way I do the things I do. And, you know, it's helped me when I get into certain situations now, you know, I've trained myself when things would typically in the past would have triggered me. I now have tools and techniques that don't cause me to be so reactive in those situations. As I've been hearing you speak, there's been a a reference in the back of my mind. I'm thinking of Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of the Holocaust. He came out of a death camp. Later in life, he became a psychologist, and he wrote a very powerful book called Man's Search for Meaning. One of the things that Frankl says in Man's Search for Meaning is that the way that you survive that kind of horrendous traumatic experience is you have a sense of hope, a sense of optimism. And I, as I've heard you talk, uh, Dr. Lovell, I've heard repeatedly you have a deep well of optimism, you have a deep well of hope. And I'm wondering, what is it that keeps you hopeful and where do you think that that hope came from? Uh, well, it's very interesting because, you know, I, 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 through this process, I started, you know, meeting and talking with a therapist, you know, just about helping me uncover and unpack things. And one of the things that, you know, he noted is the fact that through every situation that even now, you know, I'm still dealing with crises and challenges, you know, both personally and within my career, that he noticed that no matter what I encountered, I always have a sense of hope coming out. And I, quite frankly, I don't know exactly where that came from. It's something innate in me that I haven't figured out, you know, why that is, why I, given even tough situations, you know, I I still feel like there's going to be a bright side coming out of them. And so I I really, I can't necessarily uh, answer your question as to, you know, why I am that way. I just, I'm just very thankful that, you know, for one reason or another, you know, God has allowed me to have that outlook on life, even during the difficult times. And so, and I do think it's very important, you know, that as I look at individuals that experience significant trauma, that if they don't have hope and, and, and do feel like giving up, it becomes, you know, you know, that's almost something that makes me very sad because if you don't have hope, you become defeated. And I, I want people to always feel like there is an opportunity to them for, for the heal and to grow and to move out of the situation that they're in. Well, Dr. Lovell, as we're moving towards the end of our conversation today, I'm aware that there's probably at least one listener out there who is feeling suddenly an awakening of, oh my goodness, this is me. This is speaking to me. And they may feel lost. They may feel desperate. They may feel like they don't know how to access the kind of hope that we're talking about. And so I'm going to ask at the conclusion of our conversation, if you had words to say to a person that had suddenly realized that they had unfinished business, that they had trauma that they needed to deal with, that they were just starting this journey, what words of encouragement would you give to them? 
Well, the first thing I would say is know that you're not alone. As we said, the majority of people, you know, in this country are in a similar situation and that there is hope because no matter how old we are, we all have the opportunity to continue to heal and to grow. And it's really not that complicated. It's really about the fact that understanding some of the challenges you face, there are caring people and caring individuals uh, that we can all turn to uh, to help us you know, heal from those traumas. And, and quite frankly, there are practices around reflection and prayer and mindfulness that really aren't that difficult to incorporate in our daily lives that will make a real difference. Well, Dr. Lovell, I'm so moved by this conversation. It speaks to me personally and to some of the experiences that I have had. I am also aware that it's going to speak to many of my listeners and be a great help for them. I will also say that as a result of our conversation and and some of what we've said back and forth, I'm now rethinking some of the ways that I approach my teaching in the classroom because I'm realizing that a lot of the students that I'm encountering are going to have a lot more experiences that may be factoring into how they are navigating that classroom than I ever imagined. So both from a personal level, but also from the impact that I know that you're having there in Milwaukee, I want to thank you for this more public aspect of your journey. Thank you for taking time to speak about it with us today. Thank you. And I always tell individuals that we work with in this space that we're all broken in our own unique ways and that you know God has still has a plan for us. We've been speaking today with Dr. Michael R. Lovell. He's the 24th president of Marquette University. He's a distinguished scholar, researcher, and educator. President Lovell holds three academic degrees in mechanical engineering, including a doctorate from the University of Pittsburgh. Today, we've been talking about his work with his own recovery from trauma and his work on a civic level in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with the recovery from generational trauma and adverse child experiences. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.